Thank you, guys. That was nice. We've been in a sermon series called Who is Jesus? We've been looking at the I am statements that Jesus made in the Gospel of John. And in our small groups, you've been reading through John's Gospel. And uh, this week, we're going to finish up uh, with that. Uh, Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus has made an aggressive claim that he is the Son of God. He is the Jews' long-awaited Messiah. He's the Savior of the world. He is the only way to heaven. And he makes these very bold statements about who he is, and the ramifications of those statements are very, very significant. We need to know whether or not Jesus told us the truth. We need to know if who he said he is is who he is, because our eternal destiny is at stake. That's what makes the Gospel of John such an incredible book. That's what makes John chapter 20 an incredible chapter. Because John chapter 20 is about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most crucial event in all of human history. Because the resurrection is the proof that Jesus is who he said he is. Apostle Paul tells us that if the resurrection isn't true, then Christians are the most miserable people on the earth because we've bought into a lie. It all hinges on the resurrection. The resurrection isn't just an event that happened 2,000 years ago. The resurrection unleashed the power of God in our lives. It's the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. And so as we look at how the empty tomb changed the life of Mary Magdalene, you and I are going to see how it can make a difference in our lives as well. Because the resurrection confirms for us that Jesus is who he said he is. Uh, John chapter 20, verse 1, and it sets up some important details for us as, as we start out here. It says, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary of Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Now, it's important to note that this happens early. The Greek word for early there means the watch from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. And notice it says very early in the morning, while it was still dark. So early in the morning, in the darkness, Mary. And this is Mary Magdalene. This is not Mary, the mother of Jesus. You know, this is a woman that Jesus cast seven demons out of, and after that, she became one of his most faithful followers. And so Mary Magdalene got up early in the morning while it's dark, probably with torches, led a group of women to the tomb, and they were going there to apply spices to the body of Jesus. Jesus, because of the Sabbath, had been buried hastily, and they didn't have time to properly prepare the body body had been wrapped up in linen cloths and then just laid in the tomb and the the stone rolled in front of the tomb and sealed and there were Roman guards there to protect the body. And so they couldn't do anything about that on the Sabbath, so early Sunday morning, Mary leads uh, this group of women uh, to the tomb. Now it's interesting that it's on the first day of the week, it's on Sunday. And that's the reason why you're here today. Uh, That set the tone from that point on. Believers gather on Sunday to worship because Sunday was the day of the resurrection. That's how important the resurrection was. The Old Testament, they worshiped on Saturday, but the resurrection changed all that. Now, Paul tells us in Romans that it doesn't matter what day of the week you worship. So the folks who are worshiping on Saturday night are not committing heresy. They're not being disobedient. They have full freedom in Christ to worship on Saturday night. So don't look down on them, folks. Believers all around the world, centuries now, have worshipped on Sunday morning because it's the day of the resurrection. 
That's how important it is. Third detail to picture in your mind. John says that the stone was removed. And removed literally means tossed aside. You know, a lot of us, we have this picture that the stone was rolled away. It was just rolled back from the entrance. But that's not what John says. John uses a specific word that indicates that the stone wasn't just rolled away. It was literally flung aside, tossed aside. It's out of its track. It's out of place. And the Bible tells us that an angel did it. And I don't know whether he used a wing or he used his hand or how he did it, but he flung it aside. Now, the stone was not thrown aside so Jesus could get out. Jesus, in his resurrected body, it says that he just went through the grave clothes. The grave clothes that he was wrapped in, they just stayed put and just sank as his body came up out of them. We read later that Jesus had the ability in his resurrected body to walk into a room where all the doors and windows were shut. So in his resurrected body, he's not bound by material boundaries and constraints. He can go wherever he wants to. So the angel didn't fling that stone off of the tomb for Jesus to get out. He did it so the disciples could get in. He did it so you and I could get in and see that the resurrection had happened. We worship a Jesus Christ who is alive. And today when we celebrate the resurrection, we celebrate it with a lot of joy. But for Mary Magdalene, in that dark early morning in that cemetery, her first response was not joy. In John 22, Mary goes to the tomb and she sees that it's empty. And in a panic, she runs to Simon Peter and to, it says, the other disciple. That's John. It says the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, that's John who wrote the Gospel of John. John, as a matter of humility, doesn't refer to himself by name through his gospel. And, uh, but so Mary runs, gets uh, Simon Peter and John, and she says they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. And so her first response to the resurrection wasn't hope, it wasn't joy. She thought some kind of tragedy had happened. She thought that either the Romans or the Jews had come and taken him out of his tomb or grave robbers had come in and, and taken his body. So her first response wasn't hope. Much like our first response to the resurrection often isn't hope. You know, it's more disbelief or it's confusion or fear. And the first time you hear the truth of the resurrection, the first time you try to apply resurrection power in your life, the first response isn't always hope. It's more confusion. How, how does this work? How does this fit into my life? Or doubt, is this power, is this real? Is it really going to work in my life? Or it's fear. I'm afraid of what will happen to my life if I yield to this power. And so for Mary, it was confusion. For Thomas, it was doubt. For the disciples in the upper room, it was fear. Notice Mary says, they have taken the Lord away. Often when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, the hope is right there in front of us. But instead of seeing a resurrection, we just see an empty tomb. And there's a difference. So we take a look at Mary Magdalene and her experience. And, and as we do that, I want to talk to you about how you can see the truth of the resurrection in your life. How do you see it in a way that matters and makes a difference to you? I'm primarily talking to you as believers in Jesus Christ. Uh, the point of this is not talking to somebody who's not a believer, trying to convince them of the resurrection. Primarily, I'm talking to those of us who are believers so that we can see the truth of the resurrection and the difference that it can make in our lives. 
The resurrection is a powerful factor in my family, in my job, in my thought life, all areas of my life. This is important. So how can I start to see the resurrected Jesus in my life? When I'm depressed, when I'm worried, when I'm defeated, how do I see that the resurrected Christ is there? How do I unleash the power of his resurrection in my life? Well, Mary and the disciples teach us through, through their experience. Now, John 20, verses 3 through 9, is a striking eyewitness account by the Apostle John. John wrote this about 50 years after this event happened. He was probably in his 30s when it happened. He wrote this when he's in his 80s. And, but it reads like he'd just seen it. It's cool. Verse 3, he says, Peter and the other disciple, that's John, started for the tomb. Both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And I think it's interesting that 50 years later, uh, John wanted to make sure that we know that he beat Peter to the tomb. <laughs> I mean, I just think that that's, that's just cute. It just shows the humanity of him here. You know, here he is, this 85-year-old guy, and he's like, and I remember the time I ran faster than Peter and beat him to the tomb. <laughs> he bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. You know, Peter's like, out of the way, John, I'm going in. And he runs in. He doesn't stop at the door. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, you know, you know <laughs> also went inside. He saw and believed. Now, if we want to see the resurrected Christ in our lives, there's some things we need to notice here. First, we need evidence for our mind. Otherwise, how do we know this is real? Because anybody could make up anything about a religion and try and get people to believe it. You know, we see that in our day. There's people just make stuff up and then try and get everybody to believe it. So when you and I say, I believe in the resurrected Christ, what makes that any different from any other story that somebody could make up? Well, what makes it different is evidence. You know, something real happened in that tomb. Now, almost every commentator who writes on this passage notices that there are three different words used in this passage for the word saw or see. You know, the evidence of the resurrection hinges on what the eyewitnesses saw. And in verse 5, where John bent over and looked in the tomb, the word means to glance or to look quickly at something. You just kind of take it all in at once. You give it a once-over. Then in verse 6, Simon Peter went in and saw the strips of linen. That's the word where we get our word theorize from. Peter steps in, he's looking at what, what happened, and he's thinking it through. He's coming up with a theory about what happened. And then the final word that's used is in verse 8. The other disciples, this is John, the other disciple, John, who'd reached the tomb first, also went in, he saw, and he believed. Well, that's the third word that's used here, and in the Greek language, that word means to perceive, to understand, to intelligently comprehend the truth. You know, it's three different ways of seeing a truth that God wants me to see in my life. I can sort of glance at it as I run by, or I can gaze at it and try and come up with a theory. Or the third way is, I can get it. I can believe it. Intelligently comprehend the truth. John got it. 
He sees the grave clothes lie in there, and it clicks in his mind, this is real. This changes everything. This is significant. This isn't some theory. And God wants us to get it, to perceive with intelligent comprehension. Uh, some people think that faith means that you stop thinking. You know, you become a Christian, your brain falls out. That is not true. That is not true. Christians have always been thinking people. You look down through the history of science and philosophy and all this stuff. You know, the leaders in this stuff, most advanced nations are Christian nations. You know, Christianity is, is a religion of reason. Yes, you come to faith in Christ. You know, there's, there's a handhold here of faith and reason. But it's not true that you can't think once you're a Christian. Christianity is not unreasonable. It makes sense when you look at, at what really happened and how things have unfolded. It's not like there's no evidence for our faith. There's a number of very strong evidences for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, the first is the historical record. History proclaims that Jesus Christ was resurrected. Any honest historian who looks at the historical record will realize that Jesus Christ really lived, really died, and was really resurrected because history attests to that fact. Another proof is the change in the life of the disciples. You know, the, the disciples weren't shrewd men who figured out some weird way to start a new religion. It's not like they decided, well, let's go get our leader killed off, and then we'll hide out in the upper room, and then we'll perpetrate the fraud of a resurrection on everybody. It's not what happened. I mean, these are defeated, depressed, fearful individuals hiding. And all of a sudden, their lives change. And they are out preaching in the street. They're not afraid of being arrested. They're not afraid of being martyred. I mean, what happened to change the lives of the disciples? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, you don't live the way those guys lived if you're building it on a fraud, on something that you know isn't true. No. They built their lives on the truth of the resurrection. Third proof is the silence of Jesus' enemies. You know, if you're one of Jesus' enemies, the Romans or the Pharisees, and you have disciples going around saying Jesus is alive, well, what do you need to do to stop them? All you've got to do is produce the body. All you've got to do is just prove that Jesus is dead. But they couldn't find the body because there wasn't one there. They had sealed the tomb, but they made the mistake of sealing the tomb so nobody could get in. They didn't seal the tomb so no one could get out. And Jesus uh, burst out of that tomb, and so there's no body there. The fourth evidence is you. You are an evidence to the truth of the resurrection. The fact that you are here, the fact that your life has been changed by your belief in the resurrection is evidence of the truth of the resurrection. And what happens to you doesn't happen if it's not true. Now, for John, the evidence was very powerful. When he went into that tomb, he saw and he believed. Now, what did he see that made him believe? Was it that the stone was tossed aside? That wasn't it. Was it an angel? No, it wasn't it. He saw the grave clothes lying there, and he believed. There was something about the arrangement of the grave clothes. I mean, they were lying there like Jesus had just evaporated out of them. They were folded neatly. They weren't unwrapped. I mean, this is a body that's been wrapped in strips of linen cloth. You can't get a body out of that without disrupting those, those linen strips. You know, if you've come in and stolen the body, the head cloth isn't going to just be laying there folded. 
John realizes the body has come out of those grave clothes and, and they're not disturbed. That's what changed his mind. Because you couldn't get a body out of that wrapping without tearing everything up. And so that was enough evidence for him. He saw that and he believed. Now when it comes to seeing the resurrected Lord, we need more than just evidence for our mind. We need answers for our heart. And that's where uh, Mary Magdalene helps us. And John may have been the first to believe, but Mary was the first to see the resurrected Christ. Incredible thing is that Mary, when she sees him, she doesn't recognize Jesus at first. So the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. She stayed there. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. So Mary looks into the tomb and she sees two angels. They ask her why she's crying and she says, somebody's taken the body of Jesus and she doesn't know where it's at. And so evidently Mary doesn't recognize them as angels. She's not come to the same conclusion that John has. Evidently the evidence was not enough to convince her at this point. Mary still sees an empty tomb, not a resurrection. She's still looking for the dead body of Jesus Christ. Verse 14, she turns around and Jesus is standing right there, but she doesn't realize it's Jesus. And the question is, why not? I mean, Mary knew Jesus. She knew what he looked like. Obviously, he looked like Jesus because other people recognize him later. Why didn't Mary recognize him at that point? Well, there's two key reasons. The first one is her tears. She couldn't see Jesus through her tears. When the Bible says that Mary is weeping here, it doesn't use the word for just one lone tear kind of coming down her cheek. Mary is wailing. Mary is bawling her eyes out. And the tears are streaming down her face. She has a broken heart because of all that she's been to. And because of her tears, she can't recognize Jesus. Second reason was her focus. She couldn't see Jesus because she was more focused on the tomb. She was more focused on what was in front of her than the resurrected Lord who was right there beside her. And so she's peering into the empty tomb, trying to find the dead body and ignoring the resurrected Christ when he's standing right there trying to give her hope. You know, the empty tomb is a great thing. But it's the resurrected Lord that we really worship. You know, we don't worship an empty tomb. We don't worship a place. We worship a living Lord. And anytime we allow ourselves to focus more on some tradition or some place or some ritual or some circumstance or some tragedy or some hurt in our life, anytime we get our eyes off the resurrected Lord, we lose our focus and we lose our hope. You know, because of her tears and because of her focus, Mary didn't recognize him at first. And that can happen to us. I mean, there are times in my life, times in your life, when the resurrected Lord is right there and he wants to make a difference, but we just can't recognize him. So Jesus asked Mary two questions to help break through her tears and her fears. First, he says, why are you crying? Interesting question. I mean, Mary's heart has just been through this incredible tragedy. I mean, she's seen Jesus Christ arrested. She's seen him uh, beaten. She's seen him nailed to a cross. She saw his body taken down and buried in a tomb. And now she comes to the tomb in the dark of the night, and it's empty. Somebody has stolen the body. 
And because of that, she's hurt. She's crying. And it reminds us of what some of you may be facing today. You know, maybe your dreams are at a dead end like Mary's were. Or, or maybe your life has taken a U-turn from where you thought you were going. Or maybe the support uh, for you has just crumbled beneath you. You know exactly what kind of feelings Mary was having. And Jesus Christ says today to you, why are you crying? What's making you hurt? Mary reminds us of what we need when we hurt so badly. We need to realize that Jesus Christ cares about the hurt in your life. He cares about the struggles that you're going through. And Mary's hurt was keeping her from recognizing Christ. You don't let your hurt keep you from seeing that Jesus Christ is alive. Martin Luther started the Lutheran Church. He was the father of the Protestant movement, the Reformation, back in the 1600s. And Luther was a great man, but he struggled in life just like the rest of us. And uh, he, he had a great wife, uh, Catherine. Katie, he called her. And one day he was in a deep depression over something that had gone wrong, and, and he was just down deep in this, in this depression. And about the third day of being in this depression, his wife, Katie, came downstairs and she was dressed all in black. She was dressed in mourning. And he asked her, he said, Who, who's dead? And she said, God's dead. And Luther said, well, well, God can't die. And she said, really? I thought he died by the way you've been acting the last few days. <laughs> you know, sometimes you and I act like Jesus isn't alive. But guess what's greater? Our hurt or the fact of the resurrection? And for Mary, this is the hugest hurt that she'd ever faced. And in her hurt, Jesus came to her and said, why are you crying? And he asks us that question too. He wants to know because the resurrected Christ has an answer for our hurts. That's what the resurrection is all about. An answer for our hearts. And then he asked her a second question. He asked her, whom are you seeking? Who is it that you're looking for? You know, God has a great way of asking great questions. First question in the Bible, God asked in, uh, back in Genesis. Uh, Adam had sinned in the Garden of Eden, and Adam is hiding behind the bushes in the Garden of Eden. And God comes into the garden, and he says, Adam, where are you? And I just love that, that question, because God knew where Adam was. I mean, God knew Adam was hiding behind the bushes. And so God's not asking, really, Adam, where are you? God is asking, Adam, why are you hiding? Adam, why are you concealing yourself from me? Adam, why aren't you open and, 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 and free and vulnerable with me anymore? That's the question that he's asking. Jesus asked great questions. You know, the feeding of the 5,000, he asked the disciples, how many loaves do you have? You know, he knew what was going to happen, but he wanted them to know how little they had and how much they needed him. Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? And then he asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? Now, one of my favorite questions that Jesus used to ask is, what do you want me to do for you? Great question. And sometimes in our lives, instead of asking God questions all the time, we just need to be quiet and listen to the questions that God is asking us. Where are you? Why are you hiding? Why aren't you open and honest with me? Why aren't you available to me? Why aren't you depending on me? 
Who do you say that I am? Who is it that you're looking for? Why are you crying? As Mary listened to those questions, she began to hear, and her life started to turn around. And it leads to the third thing that helped her to see the resurrected Lord. It's the third thing that we need. We need a relationship for our soul. We need evidence for the mind, answers for the heart, and a relationship for the soul. This is a heart, mind, and soul proposition. I've got to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's what happened with Mary Magdalene. There's this incredible recognition that happens in this passage where Mary says, I recognize you, Lord. And she also realizes, you recognize me, Lord. Verse 15, thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. I mean, I just imagine Mary trying to carry the body of Jesus. I mean, it's unrealistic. What, what, what she's expressing here is the intensity of the hope that she has that she can somehow find him. And then Jesus said to her, Mary. I just love the fact that, that the first words that the resurrected Christ spoke was not some theological statement. It was not some sermon. It was the name of one of his followers. I mean, Jesus said, the great shepherd, the good shepherd, he calls his sheep by name and they recognize his voice and Jesus says Mary and Mary realizes who he is and she cries out Rabboni which means teacher I mean there Mary is in the in the depth of this tragedy she's in the garden with an empty tomb looking for Jesus's body she turns around she starts talking to somebody that she doesn't even realize who they are and through her tears and through her loss of focus she mistakes him for the gardener and, and then Jesus says Mary. And suddenly there's this recognition. But there's a question for us in that too. The question is, who do we mistake Jesus for? You know, we laugh at Mary because she thought Jesus was the gardener. But who do we mistake Jesus for? There ever been times in your life when you've mistaken Jesus for luck? I was so lucky that car missed me. I can't believe I was lucky enough to get that job. How lucky I am to have my wife and kids. How lucky I was today. It's not luck. Jesus Christ was there. The resurrected Christ is at work in your life. How often do we mistake Jesus for our own power and strength and intellect and ability? But no, Jesus Christ, the resurrected Christ, is there working in your life. Who do we mistake him for? Mary mistook him for the gardener. Jesus wouldn't let that stand. And, and so it moves from I recognize you, Lord, to you recognize me, Lord. And he calls her Mary. I mean, that's the name that she'd heard when Jesus had cast the demons out of her. And when he called her out of a life of sin, it's the name she'd heard him again and again as he taught her and the other disciples day by day. But this time, her name helped her to recognize Jesus Christ is alive. The resurrection moves from being an historical event to being a personal event when we hear Jesus Christ speak our name. Have you ever heard Jesus Christ speak your name? Have you recognized him as the resurrected Lord? I mean, he wants to be personally involved in whatever it is you're facing. And because of that, you can have a personal relationship with him. That's something that we need for our soul. And that's why he was resurrected. It's a mind, 
heart and soul proposition. Now, there's something else that's interesting here that I think is important about this story, and that is that the first witnesses of the resurrection were women. I mean, every once in a while, I hear somebody say, oh, Christianity, it's a chauvinistic book. Oh, Christianity is oppressive to women. And every time I hear that, I just have to laugh because they obviously have no understanding of history. They haven't taken a minute to study the Bible or study Christian history. Jesus Christ came into a world where women were considered property at best and even treated worse. I mean, that's the kind of world that Jesus came into. And you've seen, as you've studied the Gospel of John, you've seen how he has honored women. You know, some chauvinistic man wrote the Bible, he wouldn't have had women being the first ones to see the resurrected Christ. It would have been Peter or John or one of the big dog guys. But no, it's women. And Mary witnessed the resurrection. Jesus says to her, he says, do not hold on to me. And that terminology there, it doesn't mean don't touch me. Sometimes we read that and think, oh, you know, he says, I, it'll be a while. I haven't ascended to my father yet, so don't touch me. We, we think, oh, maybe if she touches him, he's going to evaporate or she's going to melt or something like that's going to happen. But he is not saying, don't touch me. In fact, later on, he'll tell Thomas, stick your hand into my side and see how real I am. He's not afraid of being touched. He's saying, cling to me. Don't cling to me. I've got things to do. You've got something I need you to do for me. I'm here for a few more days before I ascend to my father. And so he says, go tell my brothers that I'm returning to my father and your father and my God and your God. And this is the first time that Jesus calls his disciples brothers. He's shown that we have the same relationship with God because of the resurrection. Because of the resurrection, we have the same Father, we have the same God, we're in the same family. Mary runs to the disciples and she tells them the news. Verse 18, best thing you can say about any moment in your life. She says, I have seen the Lord. That's what I want. That's what I want for you. I want you to be able to say, I have seen the Lord. I've seen the Lord's direction in my family. I've seen the Lord's comfort in this hurt. I've seen the Lord's will in this confusing decision. I've seen the Lord's presence in this place of trouble. I have seen the resurrected Lord. Let's pray together. Father, in this prayer time, we just want to take a few minutes not not to just glance at you or gaze at you and theorize about what you might be doing, but we want to get it, to see.